This podcast is brought to you by Uconnect, the creator of the first all-in-one virtual career center. Scale your impact and engage more students with a platform that puts all of your career resources in one place. Hey friends, welcome back to the Career Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger, and this week I'm excited to welcome Joe Testani, the deputy to the president and the former associate vice provost for career education initiatives at the University of Rochester. In this episode, I talk with Joe about how career services in higher ed in general can more effectively and efficiently work with education technology. Joe discusses the current gap between the industries of higher ed and ed tech and what it will take to fix it. He also shares his best strategies and tips for evaluating, purchasing, and getting the most out of any ed tech tool, particularly in the context of a career office. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for being here, Joe. Thank you for having me, Meredith. Really excited to be part of the podcast and really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad to have you. And I'm excited to talk to you today about how career services and higher ed in general can better work with education technology. Now, I know this is something you're particularly passionate about. You've worked in career services for over 20 years. You've been an advisor for a few different ed tech companies. And I know you've implemented a lot of technologies over the years. So you've kind of seen both sides. And I think that puts you in the unique position of understanding sort of the nuances of both industries and how they can better understand each other and work together. Yeah. Plus, I would love to pick your brain a bit on how you evaluate ed tech, kind of how you get that buy-in to make those purchases, how you manage your ed tech stack, and then how you make sure you're getting the most out of each tool. Because I know that is very top of mind for a lot of folks right now as budgets get tighter. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I love this con- love this topic, love the conversation. So I'm really excited to dig in with you. All right. Yeah, let's do it. But before I get into my more specific questions, Joe, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself, your background, or your role there at the University of Rochester? Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, I've been working in career education for 20 plus years, worked at public and private institutions throughout my career. Um, and like many folks in this area, I, I kind of stumbled into career education. You know, it was my senior year undergraduate. I wasn't using the career center. And I went to get a job at the academic advising office, actually. And I realized, like, well, you could do this work and work with people and peers and <laughs> kind of help them in this way. So I was a sociology history major. And so I was looking to, like, work with people in some way, shape, or form, but didn't understand that until I had that internship. And it really kind of changed the trajectory of my career and, and my experiences afterwards. And I went on to just have just a really diverse set of experiences at, at different types of institutions, which I think really shaped, I think, how I looked at education, looked at my own experiences, but also the universities I worked at. So eight years ago, I got to the University of Rochester. I was charged with rethinking and helping the institution think about their career education for undergraduates here at the university. And it was a fantastic ride. I have an amazing team that we assembled here to do some really great work and really build out our ecosystem. And about a year ago, I was looking for a different challenge, you know, look to scale out and how do I make a bigger impact? And I joined the president's office as deputy of the president. It was a loose job description, I have to tell you. It was yeah, like, you I'm know, curious what that entails. Strategic initiatives. <laughs> and so I kind of had a hand in helping to craft a little bit. So I was good with the ambiguity, but I was really brought on to think about long-term strategic projects for the president as we we're kind of coming out of the pandemic or coming to this next phase of the pandemic. You know, everything was very much dealing with immediate issues and fires and challenges. And I think the president wanted to look a little further out. Like, how do we start to build some things and think about the long-term benefits and the sustainability of the institution? And so um, the project that landed on my lap, this is what I work on pretty much daily now, is the strategic plan for the institution and drafting that. And we're about to launch uh, our Balance Possibility 2030 Strategic Plan this summer, which I'm really excited about. And I've been managing and project managing and leading a lot of the coordination efforts from across the institution to put together our goals, objectives, our dashboard for tracking our progress. And it's been a lot of fun so far and a great uh, way to engage in the university in a very different way. Yeah, I bet. And very, how cool to be so like high level and have a hand in creating that overall strategy. And I'm guessing... 
I'm guessing career readiness maybe plays a role oh, hell, in that strategic oh, yeah, plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was very blunt with the president and with other senior leaders. I said, listen, I'm biased, but I think if you look at the landscape of higher education right now, what institution is not thinking about career? What institution is not thinking about the ROI for families and for students? What institution is not thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the intersection it plays with social mobility? Luckily, it wasn't a very hard sell to really prioritize that. And so one of our goals focuses on reimagining student success and the educational experience of undergrads and grad students. And a number of our key objectives focus on experiential learning, uh, focus on uh, competency development, future of work. And so, yeah, I definitely have some fingerprints on some of the writing (laughs) that came out of the strategic plan. But I think that's what we have to do, right? We have to advocate for the things that we believe are important. I think that's what made career services such a fun area to work in for so many years. And I think that's an opportunity to really elevate the importance of it. And I think that's what I was always striving for in my career. And I think I didn't really think this was the type of role I would be in to be able to do that. But here I am. Yeah. Yeah. What a unique career path. Yeah. And I'm excited to learn more about kind of, again, how technology plays a role in some of those plans for improving career readiness there at the university. But before I get into those questions, I do want to kick us off with a question that I've been asking all of our guests on this podcast. And that is, what does career everywhere mean to you? I think when I was prepping for this and I was looking at the the questions, I think this is something that just conjures up what's been central to my career, especially for the last 10, 15 years, is that I truly believe that their work of career education and preparing students and student success is the entire university's role and responsibility. It's not an office, it's not a person. So the ecosystem that is established within a college or university both the people that are working in the institution, but also the families of, of our students, the, the networks that they bring to the table are all play an integral role in the success of students and what happens to them after they graduate from the institution and even while they're, while they're there. So to me, it's about the ecosystem and it's about the support that all students need in order to launch and really have viable, thriving careers. Oh, I love it. That's a good answer. Nice, very concise and... <laughs> Was it better than all the other ones you've gotten so far? And you'd have to answer that question. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't answer that question. <laughs> no, it was kidding. great. All right, cool. Well, now I kind of want to get into our topic today. And again, that's how how we can better work with ed tech, how higher ed and ed tech can better work together. Now, in our prep call, you talked a lot about bridging the gap between higher ed and ed tech. And so based on your many years of experience working in higher ed and implementing lots of new technologies, in your mind, what is that gap and what's causing it? So a colleague and I, Rose Nakamoto, who was formerly at Santa Clara University, her and I had talked a lot about this topic and we, we wrote an article about it on LinkedIn because we were really passionate about it and really trying to help maybe bridge that gap and start to think about how to really close it. I think the first thing that comes to mind is understanding. And it seems simple, but I think oftentimes universities or people working in higher ed don't understand the business models of our ed tech partners. They don't understand the mission or purpose of why they exist and what they're trying to do and, and the problems they're trying to solve for. They don't understand you know, what the motivations are for the work that is happening in the ed tech side. On the ed tech side, I think oftentimes there's a lack of understanding of how higher ed works full stop, right? How we make decisions, how um, we evaluate opportunities or decisions, how we evaluate products and software. And so I think it's important as a first step is trying to see how do we really elevate that understanding as both as individuals, but also as a collectively as a community, how do we create a little more shared understanding? Uh, Many cases, we have similar missions and purposes that we're trying to solve for, for, you know, our students that we're serving. I think there's a a second thing is is authenticity and trust. Sometimes there's an inherent lack of trust of anybody external to the institution. And sometimes that's something that has been bred culturally. And other times it's something that we're taking our in loco parentis responsibilities very seriously. And I think it's something that we take uh, part of. And uh, and the authenticity pieces, you know, people are selling product to you. They're selling a business. And I think that's part of what we're selling to students all the time about the value of career services or the value of an education or the value of our institution. So I think that's that authenticity goes both ways and understanding that and, and finding that common ground is key. I think language 
as a third item is really, really matters. And oftentimes we say similar things, but we use very different language. How do we find common language? But I think that's really important because the language that's used in a lot of ed tech circles is very different than what might be used in higher ed. And I think sometimes that creates a barrier for understanding or a barrier for just engagement. And lastly, is this is, I guess, a separate podcast topic, <laughs> what is from change management. And I think to me, Oftentimes, from a higher ed standpoint, we don't think about change management, how we want to change behavior or change systems or change student engagement and think about the impact of that change uh, across the ecosystem. Conversely, I think our our ed tech partners sometimes don't understand that there's solutions in in their ripple effect or downstream issues that their solutions might create in terms of change for a team or for students. So I think understanding change management from both sides and understanding the impact of the technology, I think is really important. And sometimes it's not given enough consideration that it's more than just implementing a new technology. That's the easy part in some cases of the change. It's all these other pieces that come with it that sometimes we don't think through. That's really difficult. It's challenging. It takes time. But I think those are those are critical areas. So I think those are kind of some key areas that I think can sometimes add or create the barrier between the two. Okay. So it's the different language, that lack of understanding and trust, change management. Did I get all of them? Was that most of them? And trust. Yeah. That, that establishing that base of trust for sure. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's funny hearing you talk about kind of the differences between ed tech and higher ed. It's very true. I've worked on both ends of the spectrum. I worked in higher ed on the central marketing and communications team at Washington State University for about four years. And then I left and have worked in several different tech companies before landing in ed tech here at Uconnect. And so, yeah, I can vouch for the different paces of work, just the different way that things happen, <laughs> different way that teams work together, the size, the sheer size of a university versus, you know, smaller ed tech company. It's just, there is a lot. <laughs> Yeah, the speed is, oh my gosh, we didn't even talk about the speed, but the speed of change or the speed of, of work is so vastly different, right? You know, like a lot of folks in that tech, you know, they're working on quarters, and they're trying to make progress quarter to quarter, and that's unheard of. <laughs> and like, we'll figure out next academic year, right? It's And, you know, talking to folks, they're like, well, you're going to wait a whole year to implement something new <laughs> if you know that there's a problem. And in many cases, yeah, because I think that there's a cycle and that there's a life cycle of, the academic year and the students and, and, the, and the teams, that's challenging. That's a really challenge for, I, I know, for folks trying to work with higher education, but it's also a challenge for, like, I have always ch- had a challenge with that, just leading teams over the years about that pace of change. And we had to build those muscles in the teams that I've had to be more comfortable doing it faster and having a biased action. That took time to develop that culturally within the teams that, that I've been part of. I feel like I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that topic. That is it's a fascinating topic for sure. And you can bring some of my team members, my old team members on as well. I'm sure they have their opinions about how we did that. <laughs> there you go. It'll be the Joe Testani episode 2.0. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Do your students get terrible career advice from YouTube and TikTok? Give them access to better video content with Candid Career Plus. The YouTube of career videos, Candid Career Plus is an expansive video library with thousands of career-focused videos that cover a wide range of topics, interests, industries, advice, and more. And every video is sourced from best-in-class career content creators, including ADP List, Way Up, and many more. Learn more at goyouconnect.com slash candidcareerplus. Okay. So I think we've, we've pretty well established kind of what that, that gap is and some of the things that are causing it. So in your mind, how do we go about closing that gap and fixing some of these problems? I think it's, it's layered, right? I think you first, to me, you have to take an honest assessment of your, from a career center or from a university's perspective. You have to have some honesty about where you're at with these topics, right? Like how deep is your understanding? How, how, what's your sophistication level on language and understanding business models and technology implementation and change management? So I think it's doing a really healthy self-assessment and recognizing or at least trying to rate 
your level of comfort with those different areas, right? And and this is hard because sometimes being self-reflective is, is a difficult thing, generally speaking. But to have an honest assessment of that, I think you might think you're really good at those things. And so how do you get an external view of that? Um, how do you bring some people in to have that conversation? And um, so that is an important self-assessment. I think on the ed tech side of the equation, it's really taking a hard look at what's your value proposition? And not only to the students, but to the teams that you want to use these products. And how does this disrupt their lives? Because even though you're looking to create solutions and provide solutions, and that's the sort of the goal of many of the companies that you know, have been able to partner with over the years, a lot of times it, it causes disruption unintentionally. And so it's taking a hard look at that disruption and what it does to the team, the people that you're trying to help. Because at the end of the day, we both want to help students. We might have different views on how to do that. And so it's taking that time to understand personas, taking the time to understand different stakeholders that are involved in executing or delivering that product to students. But really, it's taking a step back and doing, I think, a lot of self-reflection and self-awareness about where you are and then filling those gaps accordingly. All right, what do I need to do to learn more about industry or about uh, the, the marketplace? What do I need to do to learn more about higher ed? Who are people I can ask? As many companies like yours, you know, talk to folks and talk to leaders and try to get as much intel as possible to inform them before they launch a product or as they make changes to your product, right? Because it doesn't end once you launch the product. Yep. <laughs> if you're doing your job well, you're iterating and you're expanding the product and you have new developments and you're, you're constantly bringing new things to market because the students are changing, right? And then that's definitely something that has to sort of be built in. And so if we don't address it at its root, then we're always going to keep running into these issues because the product is going to change. And I think that's something that we should, maybe has to be the disclaimer, like the product will change. Whatever you buy, <laughs> the product will change. And that's important because I think sometimes we think like, I just bought it and now I don't have to worry about it anymore, but there's going to be updates, there's going to be shift, and there should be. And I think that's an important thing. mindset shift is that there should be change to the products that we purchase because the world around us is shifting and the students are shifting and the needs are, are shifting dramatically. That is a, once again, culture sort of shift, but you have to be understanding of that and start to learn uh, what that muscle is. Yeah, for sure. Earlier when you were talking about how, you know, ed tech can disrupt kind of the workflow of a career center or whatever office is using it. And I was just thinking to myself how in ed tech or it's any tech world, disrupting is a positive thing. It's like, we're disruptors. We're disrupting the marketplace. But it, yeah, it's interesting to think of how that's a little different and more nuanced in higher ed. Like you are disrupting and it's, there's lots of consequences of that. So be mindful of it. I think that's the language piece, right? Like mm -hmm. when a yes. company comes in, they think a big pitch is like, oh, we're disrupting how employers recruit students or how students get information and the receivers are like, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Why are we disrupting it? <laughs> what are we looking to, why are we looking to change something? So that language can create an inadvertent barrier to the conversation just because we're, we're pitching it. And that makes sense and to your stakeholders of your, like your, don't your funders and who you're going to pitch money, you know, to get money from. If it's a VC, a VC and you're looking at fundraise, that makes sense because you have to sell like you're disrupting something to think about market and, and market share. But I think it's different when you're talking to the users at the, at the end that have been doing this for many years. And the question is, is why is the disruption needed? And I think that sometimes is the first thing that they might ask. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm like, take notes of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know you were talking about ways to kind of go out and learn more. Like if you're in higher ed, how you go out and learn more about ed tech. I know in your case, you've advised a few different ed tech companies, correct? Yeah, I've been on some boards. I've been, you know, talked to some startups and as they've gotten off the, off the ground and currently I'm serving as a higher ed advisor for Reach Capital, which is an impact VC out in California. Yeah, I imagine that gets you a lot of kind of insider knowledge on how ed tech companies work and how they sell. And <laughs> It's been really interesting to learn. You know, I think that's one of the things that, someone working in education, you're constantly have the opportunity to learn new things. And so that's been, I think, my one of my growth spaces of learning, understanding that because, listen, we're all technology companies at the end of the day, in this day and age, you know, we offer an education service where, you know, University of Rochester, we're a private university, 
we're a residential campus, so a lot of in-person, but all our students are digital natives. They come in here with a tech stack on their phone that is mind-blowing in terms of what they do and what they use technology for. So we have to think about how technology is integrated in all the work that we do, whether it's more back-end systems, you know, like Outlook and, and Excel and Word and things like that, or if it's more service delivery that we're providing something directly to them through a technology partner. So it's, it's almost wasted energy to resist like technology's role in what we do because it's already part of it, whether you think it or not. The real question is, is what aspect of the work that we do in let's say in career services, do we want to allow technology to help us do and which are the pieces that we want to retain that are inherently human, right? That are the pieces that we think that, people need to deliver and engage in. And I think that's a conversation that we're going to have to have more and more over the next few years because the technology is advancing faster and faster. But that, I think, is inherently that you know, we have to have that conversation because it, it's upon us. And saying that technology doesn't impact advising or shouldn't be part of advising, it's, it doesn't make sense to me because it, it's already there and it's influencing our students more than I think we, we realize sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I was even just thinking about schools that use the Uconnect platform, for example. Like, I hear from a lot of people that they're use they're pulling up the platform in an advising appointment. Like, it's not like the platform is doing the advising for them, but it is a complimentary resource. <laughs> yeah, it enhances it could it, the experience the students can have with their advisor, right? And and that's that's I think a great example of it being complimentary and it, and elevating the advising you can do for students because then they can do that on their own, but also it changes the conversation potentially of what an advisor might have with their student. And there's a lot of things that can do that. So the question is, which parts of the work that we're doing do we want to use technology to enhance or elevate the in-person or the human part of the work that we do? I do want to come back to that here in a second. Sure. I think we've talked a little bit about kind of why it's so important to bridge this gap between higher ed and ed tech. But is there anything else you would like to add on on that importance on why tech is so critical to the future of higher ed? No, I, I think that enhancing of the in-person is, I think, the, the big thing that's front of mind for me a lot now is, is that we have the technology is getting better and different and varied. And so I still believe the work that we do at higher ed, especially in residential campuses, but even, even commuter campuses or non-traditional students, is still a human piece of the work. I'm not a big believer in like the computers will replace us kind of mentality, but I think the computers can help us. And I think we should think about like how they help us. And so I think that's going to be the critical, one of the critical questions to focus on over the next few years is where can technology help? And, and, you have to test that. And I think that's that idea of prototyping concepts and where it can help. It's going to be really important for higher ed, broadly speaking, but, but specifically with career services. You got to start prototyping more ideas to see if they work and see how our students respond to things. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about where do we leverage technology and where do we leverage human-centered interactions? Like, Yeah, let's just dig in there. So specifically with career services, like in your mind, what what do we need to use technology for and what should we be still using humans for? I think through the, the intersectionality or the nuance students bring to the table. You don't know what a student, what the background of the student is when they show up in your office, right? If they show up in your office at all I mean, anymore, right? They might be on Zoom, they might be, you know, chatting you, whatever it might be. <laughs> but there's a lot of questions that I think we still as counselors and advisors, that's that was my my track growing, coming through this industry, right? I, I started as a career advisor, you know, working with students, having a caseload of students every day that I worked with. There's still questions that you have to ask and think about and really kind of pose to students to get them and listen for, to probe, right? Because they, they give you clues when they're talking about their experiences, whether it's their background or why they chose to come to the institution or why they're choosing the major or even their body language when they're not answering their questions. So there's still a humanness to that. There was a study done by the Lumina Foundation a couple of years ago, and they were looking at this whole skills conversation as it pertained to students as they were graduating college. And it was definitely at the height of all the technology skills you need, all the technical skills and all the STEM skills. And and they're really their, their study was looking at, what about all these other skills like creativity and, human, and empathy and things that 
leaders at all these companies that you that you poll always say those are the skills we're looking for. We're looking for leadership, critical thinking. We're looking for people to be able to solve complex problems and, and discern solutions to that. So what about those human skills? And I think you know, the study have looked at and reported that the human work is going to be critical in the future. That technology is going to automate a lot of the rote work and things that are a little bit more easy to catalog information. But the work that around that creativity and the conversation and empathy still can't be replicated, regardless of what you think about chat GPT, it still can't be replicated 100% in terms of what an advisor does or a counselor may do for a student. So I think that's going to still remain, and that's going to be a really important piece of it. How do we draw make connections for them? How do we connect them to folks in their networks? How do we build those relationships and help them do that? How do we advocate for them? with them. So there's still a humanness that's critical there. At the same time, there's all these other pieces that can be outsourced those areas so we have more space to get into those kinds of conversations. Now, I'm not advocating for like expanding counseling teams or or adding more counselors because I'm also realistic about that's not going to happen either within most universities. How do we optimize their time for those kinds of conversations by maybe using technology to offer out an outlet for some of these other services that we used to do maybe for students like looking up job boards or trying to find people in a network, they can do that on their own. How do we just in, inform them and let them do that, but really get them to the core of what they, the harder questions that they have to answer about themselves or what they want in their internship or their first job out of college or five years later. Right. Yeah. A computer's not going to approach a student with the same compassion and empathy and life experience that a person could. We can call upon many years of advising or working with students or just sitting down with them. They want you know, Many of our students still want to talk to someone about what their anxiety is around these decisions because these are still big decisions and these are anxiety-inducing. If anything, post-pandemic, they're even more anxiety-inducing, this generation of college students and what they're going into in terms of a labor market or an economy is even more unsettling than it was five years ago. So. How do we support that? How do we help them? How do we help them navigate the complexity of that and the stress that that might have on their wellness? Right. I'm curious, Joe, how how have you leveraged technology? Like, How have you kind of walked this balance uh, in your work and career services there at the University of Rochester? Pre-pandemic, we were testing the waters. You know, we had, an, I remember this conversation I had with my leadership team that we had an advisor position open and we were evaluating do we fill the advising role or do we actually use the money to invest in a bunch of tech platforms that can outsource some of the work, whether it was a resume review, whether it was something like Uconnect. We were kind of looking at a bunch of different things that had some ticket items on them that would be recurring. We had a serious conversation. How many advisees does that person see when they were, if they were full-time? What is the technology and what's the scale that we can impact? What's the problem? The technology is helping us solve, right? And so we took a step back and we evaluated that side by side. And we, we went on the side of the technology because we thought about scalability. We thought about how many students we could impact. We thought about the problem that we were having in the moment was we wanted more students to be engaged in services. We wanted more students to be engaged with resources to help them with some of those decisions. And we thought maybe we could do that with technology. So we wanted to try that. We wanted to test that, that theory out, so to speak to do that. And lo and behold, that was like literally like a year and a half, maybe before pandemic, pandemic hits. And now we're sitting in with this technology to be able to scale, to be able to engage, do virtually. And so we were positioned really well to be responsive to what was happening because we could offer up a suite of services or suite of products that allowed students to maybe engage at their time, wherever they were in the world, you know, whatever the timetable was and, and engage in, in, in with some of the, the resources that we had. So that was a really hard choice. But at the same time, a lot of this starts with what problems are you trying to solve? What are you trying to do? And I think it sounds like a simple question, but I don't know if we always ask ourselves that question enough of why are we doing the work that we're doing? What problems are we solving for? How do we scale that? Because that is going to continue to be a question we have to answer because our budgets and our resources aren't exponentially going to increase. We might get things but I think we have to think about that critically about all the students that we're trying to serve on a campus and that we're responsible for. Yeah, I'm curious, what were some of like you and your team's answers to those questions of what are you trying to do? I think for us, you know, we wanted to 
really think about what were the things that students still needed, but were time consuming for us. Could we find a, a more efficient way of delivering that? So looking at platforms that were able to give first line of defense feedback on resumes, but that would free up a lot of our advising time so that they could actually have the harder conversations with students and we can outsource that piece and say, all right, any student that is interacting with our office goes through this kind of AI powered you know, evaluation tool on a resume. And that gives a good first pass or second pass of some of that feedback that we would normally give, but you could scale that out much broader to a lot more students. And then that makes the conversation with the advisor richer. That was the thesis that we were kind of operating on. We have to see more students. We have to think about the time students need this resources because we found shockingly the students were waiting for the last minute to engage when they needed something and there was an application <laughs> deadline yep. and things like that. That's a real thing, right? And if there's a three-week wait to see somebody, talk to somebody, that's not going to cut it, right? And so we had to think about it from the student's user experience when as much as we wanted them earlier to prep and do all these things, that's also not real, always realistic. So looking at that persona, looking at that resource, looking at the work of the advisors, you know, was their job to give you know, specific grammar and technical feedback on resumes to a degree? Can that be done more efficiently another way? Now it can, right? And so like, that's that's something new that we couldn't do maybe five years ago. So I, I prompted us to explore that. Let's just try that out. Let's see how we can expand some of our, of our impact. And that, that frees us up to be with more students and do more engagements and have richer kind of programming or, or conversations. And then that's worth it in, in, in terms of, in my mind, it was worth it to think of it that way. Okay. That kind of reminds me of something uh, Tony Rohrer from UC San Diego said in a recent po- or an earlier podcast episode where she was talking about, she's like, there's so many ways to do large scale programming or offer resources so that the one-on-one appointments you do still have are more high value. It's like a better use for the student's time, better use for the advisor's time. And I think what we sometimes forget is that that's what students are experiencing and a lot of other things they do in their lives, right? They don't wait online Starbucks, right? They order it ahead of time, you know, and then they show up and they grab their Starbucks and they leave. I know I'm not comparing like advising careers to Starbucks, but I think the reality is I think students are looking there. I think they're almost wired and trained to find efficiencies. If I could do something ahead of time to prepare better for what I'm walking into, they'll do it, right? And so I think that's where I, I think it's that getting in the heads of our students and the experiences they want. And this is where institution to institution may look very different, right? The types of students that come to Rochester might be very different than the types of students that went to Binghamton University where I did my undergraduate. So they might look very different. So we have to think about the experience that we provide them slightly different. And so this is where it becomes a little more localized. They can maybe have general ideas, but then what's the local experience that we want for our institutions? Um, and I think that starts to be where things might shift a little bit depending on uh, the type of institution, the types of students that you're trying to serve. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, Joe, what does your tech stack look like? We're talking about all the like, technology in general and how you use different tools for things. I'm just curious what your tech stack looks like. Yeah, I did a slide a few uh, last year to like visualize the tech stack and we were broken up into different buckets, right? You have like your systems and, and backend support. So whether it's like things like people software or whatever student system you have to enter information in about student profiles that most universities have. You have those kinds of like infrastructure systems that are experiential learning sort of bucket where all the different tools we have for students to explore experiential learning, whether it's Forage or looking at things like MindSumo that have tools that are giving students different ways to gain experience in some way, shape, or form. We obviously have things that are more exploratory in nature, right? One of the tools that provide them exploration tools and helps them investigate what different careers might be. I have our whole networking suite of things. We had a platform that we used, PeopleGrow, for our mentoring program and networking, but also things like LinkedIn and Handshake offer those opportunities to connect with folks. uh, So they're part of that as well. So 
we took a hard look at all of our tech stack. We have to evaluate that more regularly. And we have to think about like, what is the interplay between these different technologies? You know, where do we have a platform that could help us aggregate some of that? You connect, right? <laughs> like pull some of these pieces together. And so I think that was really helpful to start to have a more of a bird's eye view, not only just like a list of things, but also the interplay between some of these platforms. And once again, what are they solving for? Is there redundancy there? Are we special over specializing on certain things? Can we expand that out? And so I think it requires us to do a constant evaluation of that year over year. Not just because of like we're spending money on it, but once again, students are changing, landscape is changing, our teams are changing. Are we have the right set of tools to complement the work that's being done? Mm-hmm. Are the products changing along with all your students? <laughs> right, right. Because what we purchased five years ago might not be a very different product now, and it maybe doesn't align anymore with what we wanted to, or maybe their purpose changed. Maybe they got acquired. Like there's so many things that factors that go into that decision making. So if you're not evaluating that, you might be missing some of those elements and nuance that's happening. Right. I'm glad you mentioned the evaluation because I think that's a nice segue to our to the next question. So what do you look for when you're evaluating a new potential edtech tool or platform? For me personally, I always start with mission. What's the mission of the organization? What are they all about? What are their values? What's the founder about? You know, if that's if there's a small startup or if they're mid-size, you know, startup in terms of you know the where they are their, their fundraising journey or if they're being funded. But I think that's always telling. It tells you a lot about the organization. And if they're like, we don't have a mission, I think it's also telling <laughs> to like kind of drive that, right? It's like red flag, red flag, red flag. So I think starting with that is is key. I think it goes back to that question of what problem are they trying to solve for, right? Because it might not be the same problem I'm trying to solve for. It might look like it, but I think asking that question very point blank of when you created the platform, what problem were you trying to solve for, right? I think it's an important thing to understand because we might assume certain things, but unless you ask that question and engage them with that discussion, uh, you might not know, right? And so I think it's important to do that. A good example is that sometimes we look at these ed tech providers and we think they're trying to solve problems for us, the career center, but they're very much solving problems for our students. And we want them to solve our problems, right? And <laughs> You're paying the money, right? two very different things. <laughs> I know, those are two very different things. And I think that's a can lead to a lot of conflict if you don't understand that, that they got into the business to solve a problem for students, not for their career centers. And one could argue that, well, those are the same, same thing. We were trying to solve problems for students as well. Not necessarily, right? And so I think that that question is really critical because it could save a little bit of heartache later down the road if we're doing that. I really think it's really important. This has been a learning curve for me is understanding business models. I didn't get like, I don't have a business degree. I have an MBA. You know, I've learned a lot over my career about budgets and finances and things like that. But I've had to ask a lot more questions about like, what is their business model? How do they make money? You know, and that's not to say like you're assessing viability for investment like a VC would, but you have to understand where their thinking is in terms of revenue generation, because I think that to me, that just gives you another point of information to help you evaluate the organization and think about what that looks like. And asking a lot of questions about that to understand, get a deeper understanding of that, I think can really be something that avoids a lot of problems down the road in terms of understanding. So I think we have a lot of misunderstanding. They are businesses. They are looking to make money, as are we as an institution. We're here to educate students, but we have financial constraints on us as an organization. So I think we avoid the topic of money and business models and things like that from a lack of understanding or because we think it's not something that we should be asking about. But I think there's a way to do that that's not confrontational, that's something that's about learning and understanding and really trying to come to, once again, that shared understanding of what organizations are. So to me, understanding business models really is important and it helps because you know we want to invest in partners that at least... They're viable, and at least as much as best as we can understand that they're going to be viable. But I think that can give at least give an, under, an insight into whether or not they've thought through the industry and if they understand higher education and what they're looking for. In fact, their primary market. And lastly, but definitely not least, what have they considered the user experience of the students as well as the career centers or higher ed users 
or whatever other stakeholders are involved, there's mentors, faculty, whatever it is, what has been their work around user experience? And I think this is a tough one sometimes for higher ed folks to ask about because they have themselves have not done user experience kind of work. They either don't have the skills to do that, which is understandable, but they haven't even asked the question, right? And they don't check with students. They don't do pulse surveys. They don't do focus groups. They don't do things like that. And so it's important to build that into practice for universities and for career services. But understanding it from the company's perspective, have you done this work, right? Because so I think that's an important piece for them if they're building a product for students or for me as a career center. What's the work that they've done to ask questions around user experience and workflows and things like that? That's a really important piece. So understanding their effort or their investment in that space, I think, is really critical. So those are some of the things like in terms of evaluating the tools or talking to founders or talking to salespeople. Like, I want to know. I want to know those questions. I want to understand those, those elements of it to better understand you know, how they're approaching me as a, as a client. How do you go about an- asking those questions? Like, do you just re- reach out to founders directly or... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think when you know, I get reached out by less, a little less so than I used to, but yeah, you know, I get reached out by people trying to pitch platforms and products all the time, right? And I don't take all the calls, but I do like taking the calls because I like asking these questions. So I'm very upfront about like, hey, I have a bunch of questions. This is I'm curious about. Let's talk about your organization. Forget about what your solution is right now and like what the price point is and if I need it or not. I want to kind of take a step back and zoom out a little bit and understand DNA and the kind of what's under the hood and understanding the foundational elements. So I've talked to founders before. I've reached out to them. I've talked to the salespeople before. And or and if they can't answer the questions, they usually escalate it to a different conversation. I've attended forums. I've attended all sorts of things. So I don't think it's hard to get that information. You just have to ask the question and be, to me, you have to be curious from the standpoint of, wanting to understand and learn it not necessarily like as a gotcha like ah, i knew you were looking to like charge people for a service that you want to provide you know like that's not that's not the end goal right that the end goal is really just to get a better understanding and assess is this the right thing for me and my students but at the end of the day that's what we're trying to do because if we don't do that we purchase a product it's not really the right fit either we're upset with the product or our students are upset with what it is and then it's just a bad relationship. And we have to unwind all the work that went into that. So to me, it's just proactively just asking under, and understanding. And it makes it easier, in my mind, it's always made it easier to work with organizations when there was something that went wrong, when there was a bug in the system, when the system did go down, because it always it always will go down at some point, to have a little bit of more of understanding. All right, well, listen, I know you're building the company. I know you're doing X. I know you're, you're aligned to what we're trying to do. So to me, it's just, it just allows me to have a little bit of grace when I need to have grace and also press harder when I think something's not aligned with what they said. Like, well, you told me that these things were what you're committed to. This doesn't look like it's committed to that. Help me understand where the, where the divide is or, or the disconnect is. So it's kind of like dating, right? You want to like ask a lot of questions. You want to get a little bit more understanding and you're not accusatory or going through a list. Well, at least how I might date. <laughs> I would, I don't want to ask a lot of questions to get a lot more background information. Check about compatibility, right? You know, you're, you're looking for that. But I think sometimes we approach that in a very transactional nature, both sides. And I think that can really be damaging to the long-term success. So I'm curious, once you you have purchased a tool, how do you go about making sure that you're getting the most out of it all the time? Oh my gosh, this is, I love this question. So um, the cheeky answer I'll give you is that I hired a project manager in my office <laughs> to make sure we did this really well. And this goes back to that question earlier about like, how do you commit to like this as a solution to your, for your teams, right? I realized that we had a gap in skill set. We didn't have someone to think about implementation and evaluation of technology. So we created a position that focused on implementation. And she's amazing. You know, she's she's absolutely fantastic, perfectly fit for the job in terms of her skill set. She was in a career advisor in her in, her, in the back. So she had an understanding of the student experience and what that looked like, but she brought a very analytical bent to the, the, the decision-making. So I know that seems like the easy answer, but honestly, I think this goes back to how do you resource your teams? And if you're deploying 
thousands of dollars towards your technology budget or investing that much in your technology. Doesn't it make sense to have someone with a little bit of understanding of project management or implementation to optimize that investment, right? You wouldn't hire somebody, a staff member, and not onboard them effectively. You would not train them. You would not supervise them, right? You would do those things with a person. So why wouldn't you do the same thing with technology? Why wouldn't you think about onboarding? Why wouldn't you think about evaluation? And and why wouldn't you think about training of the people, how to use the tools that you have there? So this is the hard part. It's sometimes we just give it to someone to manage on top of their portfolio. And I was that person when I first started my career. I was the advisor that was responsible for updating the website, launching our new platform for like jobs <laughs> for my university and still have like a full advising load and doing all that. So that was like my role um, because we didn't have someone dedicated to, to, to that work. So that's how I learned. Honestly, that's how I learned so much and how I got involved with a lot of ed, ed tech partners because I was the person doing all the work on the, on the university end to make sure the platform was being used by my team or the students. So I think that goes more to strategy for leaders to think about what's the makeup of my team, what's the investment I have to make. And it's it's a it may seem tough to make that call to say I'm gonna invest in this person to do project management versus advising. But if you think about your tech stack and how much money you're spending, you wanna get make sure you're getting your money's worth uh, for that. I think what that and the reason I think we arrived at a person is because we thought about all right. What does an implementation look like? How do you onboard this product? And and depending on what the problem was or the solution was the product was trying to solve, it could be varying levels of integration and complexity, right? Something like Handshake for us, it became how we did our work and our business of the office, right? Our advising, our postings, our engagement, all the stuff we were managing there. That's a bigger kind of implementation plan than maybe a product that specifically is deployed in our classrooms for a specific purpose, right? So I think it's the the it's a it's kind of a sliding scale depending on what the solution is. But we have to think about what does that implementation look like? What are the possible downstream implications of rolling this out? Does it interact with any other platforms? Do we have to make sure that it's part of new our, our onboarding and training of staff? Um, do we have to explain to students what it is? How do we market this to students? So that really thinking through a lot of those rollout pieces, I think, is really important. Um, I, I think it's the uh, the marketing in of itself. How do you get users to use what you're doing and the platform? I think that something like Uconnect is... And you can look at it and say, like, oh, it's really easy. It's like, that's the interface students have and you have to do anything else anymore. Well, no, not really. <laughs> you have to think through like how they're going to interact with the platform and what you're building and um, what's the different communities you want to build. And so it, it's going to do as much as or as little as you want it to do, depending on what your investment is um, in that in the platform. So I think, how do you communicate that to the users? How do you communicate to students that piece? And that's ongoing because every year you get a new crop of students in. So how do you make it part of their uh, kind of experience with your office. I think the other big piece is how do you want to integrate the larger ecosystem at the university? And that then it dictates the complexity of it. Are you syncing it into single sign-on? Are you syncing it into a larger university platform like Blackboard? Um, you know, I, I, so I think it's those that require a lot more thoughtfulness and integration, a lot more questions to really examine how do you build that out. So all of those pieces, I think you start thinking about it and how labor-intensive all of that can be. If you don't do those things, it's really hard for that product or that that software, whatever it is, to be successful, right? Because if you don't think through all those pieces, then you're probably not going to get people engaging with it. Um, Or you're relying on your advisors to do that. And that's a very limited scope of the people that might interact with your office is the people that show up for advising appointments. So those are definitely factors to consider, which is why we wind up hiring a person <laughs> to do that. Um, because there's a lot, that's a lot of pieces. And when you have a tech stack, that's 20 or 25 different products that you're trying to offer. How do you coordinate all those pieces and be clear in your communication and how you present that to a student user? Wow. Yeah, that is quite the investment, but I mean, it makes sense. 
if you're going to invest tens of thousands or however much you're investing in a tech stack, like, yeah, yeah, you're already so far, like so deep in, you may as well just have a point person who can answer any questions about it from other departments, from higher ups, someone who's an expert. It's so much, right? And and so what we what we distribute it often, right? We'll do the mar- this person will do the marketing, this person will do the integration, this student, this person will do the onboarding, and it works. People figure out how to make it work. But I think it's if we're going to continue to invest more and more in technology, we got to start thinking about you know having a skill set within our units to help manage that, and that that's a that's a different kind of investment. But I, I think once again, it's it's an, I think necessary as we move forward. Yeah, seems like a smart investment to me. So once you, you've done this evaluation process and you've decided you want to buy a new piece of technology, how do you go about getting buy-in to invest in that? Because I know sometimes there can be pushback or it can be a struggle to find the money, to get people to agree to it. So I'm curious how you work through that. This is a tough one. I think this is so variable depending on the type of institution that it is because I've worked at like public and private and, and for-profit and non-profit institutions. And it's so different in terms of the power structure, the decision-making structures. And I, and I, so I think it's important just like, what's your landscape? How are decisions made? Who holds the keys to these kinds of decisions? What are the protocols you have to go through to get a decision made? I think those are really important. Obviously, ideally, you would try to achieve as much independence from those structures as possible. <laughs> that's the ideal state. Um, and that's easier in some cases than others, depending on where the office is, is positioned. Um, but to me, this is all about relationship management. Building relationships with the people that you know are going to be critical in this decision making. So for us, we want our IT partners to understand what it is we do and the work we're doing, and how technology is a part of that, and the data that we collect and share with the university. We want them to understand that the deeper their understanding is, the easier it is to deploy products and get things through IT because they have an understanding like, all right, this is what the career center does. This is what their goals are. This is the kind of data that they have. This is how secure they're they're protecting their data. Oh, wow, they have a person that's responsible for managing their technology, right? Like these are the kinds of things from an IT perspective. Once again, they're looking at it from the standpoint of security, stability, support, like what do I have to, what is our impact on us as an IT department? I think that's I think it's important to start thinking about like how do you build those relationships? How do you understand their work so that you can then decide um, how they'll understand your work? So to me, the investment in relationships is key. I start with IT because in many cases it, all the things we do have to go through them at some point or another, right? Like as a security measure within the university. That's going to happen. Um, so I think they're they're a key piece of this puzzle in, in this discussion. I think the financial pieces, you know, I, I've seen schools, you know, get sponsorship for different platforms. I've seen them write grants for different platforms. And, you know, the career services folks are creative, if nothing else, in, in trying to get money <laughs> to do different things. That so to me, like that's yeah. almost like the easiest part of this whole equation is like, how do I creatively get the money? I think the harder part is really thinking about budgets year to year how much are you allocating to technology how much you allocate to the support of technology that i think is a harder decision right because i think that then goes to staffing that goes to what you have resources for that goes to the challenges inherent in our budgets and our understaffed nature of our offices oftentimes to deliver the things that we're asked to deliver and that becomes harder and you have to make hard choices sometimes. You know, it might be that you are committing a portion of your operating budget to technology, like like we did. We decided, you know, we're gonna have to say like we're gonna spend this much money on our budget, and that just makes sense because this is the students that we can reach with that technology. And so th- there's a variety of ways I think that career services folks will find money to pay for these things. I think the approval, I think if you're doing your job well. And this goes more to the broader storytelling of career services. I think that just greases the wheel for approvals from all these units, because if they understand that career education is elevated, do people understand the work you're doing, the impact? Are you able to show data and outcomes for the work? So this is a much broader conversation. It helps to mitigate resistance when it comes to like, we have to spend $10,000 on a platform, right? Which is in the grand scheme of things, is not a lot of money when we think about the university budget, IT budgets, you know, all these other things. 
Um, but for us in the, our office, ten thousand dollars is could be a lot. You know, it could be a big portion. Um, I, I think it was, it was almost that amount that I had when I had my first director job. That was my operating budget. It was like ten thousand dollars. That was the whole so operating I, budget. Yeah, I had to register twenty-seven thousand students with it, and I was like, "Here's twenty-seven thousand students. Here's ten thousand dollars. Good luck, and <laughs> see what you can do with this money." But you make it work, right? You try to figure out the ways you can do that and around that. So I think the, the, the money becomes easier to ask for and advocate for if your overall value of your office is, is being felt and you're doing an effective job at building relationships and telling the story of the work that you're doing and the value that technology can do to enhance that work or scale that work um, or impact the, the outcomes that you're trying to achieve for your office. So to me, this is about bigger storytelling. And that, I think, helps to mitigate some of that, those resistance pieces. Right. So it's not only about getting buy-in in real time. It's building the relationships way in advance. So so at least they have a, like a baseline understanding of what you do. Yeah. And I think this goes to, I think, a lot of the, the work that you all have done is how do you elevate the impact of career education, right? How do you tell that? story and the value to university and why students come to universities and families. Some institutions have really thought about that. And, and so this is what it takes to invest in that, right? And what the trade-offs are, right? I'm not asking for five staff members. I'm asking you for this much money to do this and to deploy that. And so I think I've used every trick in the book over my career to get <laughs> people to fund stuff. You know, I've had endowed money, I've had revenue dollars. I've had I've asked people to pay for it outright and made them the, the, the sponsor for it for for them to cover it. I've you know moved money from salary lines. I've used salary savings. Jeez, I, I think I've tried everything in the book to, to pay for <laughs> things. But that's what you do. You kind of just make it work. It, but it all comes back to like is is it a priority or not? And then you, then that kind of dictates how you can make it make it happen. Yeah, that reminds me of something. Uh... Brianna Randall from the University of Washington said in a recent webinar, she was talking about how she funded her UConnect platform through the student technology fee. Mm -hmm. So like every year students are charged a small fee to go towards this like tech pot of money. Yeah, I tried that once. I got denied, but I tried for sure. Oh, dang. <laughs> I, was, I was like totally go gunning for that money. I was like, ooh, I can charge a dollar every student and I can get how much money? So I was like you have to learn how money flows at the university. So this, this is about your understanding how the university works and how well-versed are you, the systems of the institution and how decisions are made of power brokers and money. The more you understand that, it unlocks a lot of different ideas. Like, you know, I'm sure she found, oh, there's a student fee. How do I position that? Who controls that decision? Oh, the SA, the student association controls that decision. Well, if I just sell the students on this idea as being a value, I guess what? They're going to vote on this and then decide to allocate money towards career education. You have to understand how that works in order to really kind of position that well for students. I feel like career services leaders are some of the best entrepreneurs out there. <laughs> yeah. We have to, I think we're forced to be right. And I think, and, and I think we get exposure to like entrepreneur, real entrepreneurs like out in the world. <laughs> and that's the fun part about the ed tech space to me is that we have exposure and we're working with these folks that this is what they're doing. Right. And so we can learn a lot from how we take some of those business ideas and applications and we apply them to our own work. Right. So I think there's a rich knowledge there that can be shared about how we approach the work internal to our organization that. We can learn from folks. I know that I've learned you know, some great things about user experience and personas and, and doing that analysis to better understand how we can work with our students. Well, if you ever want to chat marketing strategy, you just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to chat with you. <laughs> is there kind of on the, the money side of things, is there any other advice that you would give to career services leaders who see the benefit of tech? They understand its ability to help scale make a better use of staff's time, but maybe they're super limited with budget like you were when you had $10,000 in your whole operating budget. Yeah, I, I think this is, this is going to be an ongoing issue. It's going, it's not going away for, for higher ed. I think for me, try to always negotiate for line item budget. I think we always default to negotiating or opting for staffing. And I think we don't oftentimes build in some operating 
whether it's generic operating or targeted uh, operating money. And universities are making, and I, and I get more of a bird's eye view of this in my current job than I did in my last job, right? How are we making decisions at a very macro level about finances? Well, looking at impact. If we give this much money to this unit, what's the impact of that dollar? How can we demonstrate the impact of that dollar? So to me, if you, technology offers you an opportunity to talk about impact and scale in ways that sometimes staffing can't, right? So I think whenever you can squeeze in a line item or negotiation for operating or technology support, I think you should try. I think you always add that in. So staffing and $10,000 for X, right, to scale the work of that, that person that I'm hiring. I think that's just an important practice. If we don't do that, I like to get into the habit of, because it, to me, it's that this goes back to like how do how do financial decisions get made at your institution? What's the pyrodynamic and the jockeying? Do you have to ask for <laughs> in one of my jobs, the ten thousand dollar job? I used to ask. They didn't give me parameters. They're like, give us your budget for the next three years. I was like, okay. And I was like, is there any parameters, any limits? Like, no, whatever you want. So I put in a budget of like four hundred thousand dollars over the net for a three year period. They're like, this is crazy. What, what are you thinking? I was like, you, you told me there was no parameters <laughs> to what I could ask for. So that became a negotiation of like, well, what do you need? Well, well, you know, if, if I baseline, I need two more people, and I need this line for technology to do X, Y, and Z, right? So then it became a negotiation of like, what's necessary, what's critical path for the work that you're trying to do. And so that's something that you should think about. But if you're not asking for those line items, you're not asking for that support when you're negotiating or building in, either you're taking a new job. I always definitely think you should ask for these things as a new job. Say, I need this line. I need this much money for technology. Like That's what I did when I came to Rochester. I was like, I need a fund that I can do whatever I want with it to like launch some different ideas. And that was an important thing to ask for because I knew I needed something. I needed startup capital, right? And then they gave it to me. And so it's great. Awesome. Now I can like jumpstart and I can get some things off the ground immediately. I don't have to wait and put a proposal in for the next year. So anytime you can negotiate, starting a new job, asking for new things, every budget cycle, try to put in line items in there. I think that's an important piece of trying to build your portfolio and your budget. Okay. That's some great advice. It's all just, it's very like, like I said, very entrepreneurial. Well, yeah, I think we got to scrap, right? <laughs> that's, that's the important yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think I'm going to start kind of wrapping this up because we're already a little over time and I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else about this topic that you would like to add or any questions that I didn't ask but should have? No, I loved, I loved our discussion. I think, like I said earlier, I think we could spend a whole separate conversation on change management because I think there's so much that dovetails into that. So much of what we're talking about impacts people's identities and the workflow of what happens in many offices. And I think sometimes we don't surface that enough. And I think when we think about we talk about technology, we talk about it as a separate thing. Then what does this mean for people and the work that they do, who they are, and how this might change their day-to-day functionality? I think that's such a critical piece of this equation that we have to consider and we have to spend time thinking about. And both positively and negatively. I, and I think sometimes that we know it's the right choice to bring this technology in, but we know it's negatively affects someone's job and their value or their perceived value or worth. And that's important. But that shouldn't be the reason not to do it. I think that's sometimes where we, we default is like, what's going to make this person feel really uncomfortable and then feel less valued? And so we shouldn't purchase the technology. That's not what I'm advocating for. It's more so, how do you navigate that? How do you manage that? That's we get paid to be leaders and manage offices. That's what we get paid to manage to do and figure that out. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to support our students. And sometimes those are the hard choices that we have to make. But we can make it work and we can find the compromise in that. Um, but it shouldn't be a reason not to do that, especially in, in sort of this our current context. So I think that's a, that those are hard decisions and hard conversations. But we should use a lot of empathy for our teams as well as for the, the process, but it shouldn't prevent us from progress and making leaps forward. Well said. Some more good advice. Well, Joe, if people would like to learn more from you or pick your brain about ed tech or negotiating for line items in their budget, what's the best <laughs> way for them to do that? Uh, LinkedIn's great. Please yeah, feel free to reach out via LinkedIn. Always down for a Zoom chat or a conversation. I always love connecting. So yeah, feel free to reach out uh, there and hope to connect with some folks. 
All right. Great. Well, now I'll kind of end our interview here today with uh, something I've been doing with all of the episodes. And that's this uh, answer a question, leave a question thing. So Joe, I'll ask you a question that our last guest left for you, and then you will leave a question for the next guest. So our last guest, Christian Garcia of the University of Miami, left this very, very important, challenging question for you. And that is, is it still a faux pas to wear white after Labor Day? I've known Christian for almost 25 <laughs> years. And so like, this is very on brand uh, for, for him <laughs> to ask this question. And I'm going to have to give him a hard time that I'm the one that got the question. Yeah, he did not know you were going to be the one to get it. No, I know. It's even better. It's, it's even worked out even better than anything else. So I don't think so. Like, I, don't, I know I never ascribe to this um, this rule. I don't really wear white, generally speaking. But I definitely, I don't know if it's, if, I think it depends where you live in the country or the world. Uh, I think that might dictate some of that. But I don't think it's as faux pas as it used to be. That'll be my answer to that question. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking, I'm like, if you live in Miami, like Christian does, you're going to want to wear white after Labor Day. Might get too warm. But they also might pay attention to what you're wearing after Labor Day more in Miami as well. So it's a conundrum for folks who live down there. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, what question do you want to leave for the next guest? Oh, my God. I had so many ideas for this one. This is probably the hardest question that you presented to me. It was like, what's one question I want to leave? But one of my favorite podcasts is uh, about movies. And, and so at the end of his, he does interviews with directors and then people that make movies and artists. So the question he asked at the end, which I think is really fun, is what's the favorite thing you've watched recently and why? So I'll leave that for your next guest. Oh, I like that. It's a good one. I'm trying to think what, what my answer to that would be. I was just watch, re-watching Ted Lasso yesterday for like the third time. Have you started the new season? Yeah, I watched the first episode the other day. Same. Me too. I'm excited. Sense of so many things. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> uh all right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking with you and learned a ton. And I think our audience will too. So thank you again for lending your time. No problem. My pleasure and great conversation with you today, Mark. That's all for this episode of Career Everywhere. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.